Hello everyone and welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. We happen to have all four of us here for this particular recording and I'm really looking forward to it. My name's Lachlan. My name's Cameron. G'day everybody, Ken here. And I'm Luke. Now, I I know that a couple of you are down in Tasmania and I've heard there's been some quite wild storms. Um, so I hope that you've all survived through those all right. It seems everyone's getting their fair share. It was It was us in New South Wales with rain not so long ago. Well, last night the roof blew off a garden shed of mine and I just spent uh, today retrieving the pieces from various paddocks and, and piecing it back into the semblance of a, of a shed and it's, it's almost passable. <laughs> oh, no. well, well done. Well, that's one way to undo the plans for a day, I suppose. Well, I, mm. I arrived <laughs> home from two days in Hobart, which where the weather was pretty well okay, uh, but I observed that the largest wattle tree on my property is now on the ground. Oh. For, fortunately, hasn't damaged anything. No other trees, no fences, or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's just down. It was getting a bit scrappy anyway, as wattles do. Mm. Right, right. Well, um, we hope that that everyone listening is also coping with all of the unusual weather's that we're getting around the place. It seems seems there's a fairly generous dosage um, happening out of of such weather. So. Um, thoughts with everyone who are, who's impacted and everyone we have a comment that came in by email and the the comment was from Carolyn in New South Wales who um, shared with us some of one of her favorite uh, spurious correlations between margarine consumption in Maine and the divorce rate so there you go um, but on a more serious note she commented in her email that she actually appreciated um in one of our recent episodes, we, we commented about putting on su- slightly cynical hats. Um, and I, I guess I don't believe I'm relieved... the word slightly was ever used. <laughs> Slight. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm, I'm relieved and, and um, quite intrigued, I suppose, to, not surprised really to find that, that many of you listening um, actually do uh, appreciate somewhat some of the, I guess we attempt to approach some of these things from from an honest and an open perspective to to see if we can discover something useful and new rather than just always um you know reminding ourselves that we already think everything that's already true so um thank you carolyn for for the um i guess the affirmation and she specifically said that it was all the better for no nice neat answers so there we are we don't need to worry about focusing too hard on the concluding remarks in this podcast it's fine if we don't leave the nice neat answers we can just we can just go until we get to the hard hard questions and leave them hanging (laughs) it reminds me um this this may not be a wholly appropriate reference for this podcast but monty python did a great innovation in comedy where they made a conscious decision in their in their sketch writing to just end it when it stopped being funny Yes, and they made a they made a a, a, um, a running gag about just ending sketches, right? And their catchphrase. And they ran out of funny things to do. We're not trying to write an ending for them. Yeah, I remember yeah. the catchphrase. And now for something completely yeah. different. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we we can we're in, we're in you know austere not austere we're in good company if we're yeah. uh, if if we're just ending things when they stop being interesting. On a slightly more serious note. And I love Monty Python. Um, uh, my favourite philosopher, Dallas Willard, 
um, speaks about the uses of scepticism. And I prefer that word to cynicism because cynicism is mm. uh, seems to me to be almost unredeemable, although my wife accuses me of it. Uh, um, <laughs> no, no, nonetheless, I prefer the, I, I prefer the word scepticism. Um, uh, and he points out that there are two proper purposes for scepticism. Uh, one is to challenge authority, uh, because authority relies on certain thoughts um, and uh, ideas and worldviews, uh, and um, uh, it keeps authority accountable. Um, and uh, the other is to motivate further inquiry uh, and in pursuit of truth. And I think uh, that really is our motivation um, when we're putting on those slightly sceptical hats. Mm, yeah. Mm. I, I often ponder on the fact that if, if, one is, if one is going to be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, then one has to be open to the fact that they might not yet have all the answers. It does not necessarily follow that if one is proudly proclaiming that they do not yet have all the answers, that they necessarily are following the leading of the Holy Spirit, though. Um, yeah, quite so. so. So there's a caution in there. <laughs> there's, Ken and I uh, preached last week. There was a cancellation at Launceston and they needed someone to fill it last minute. And Ken and I had a discussion as the sermon, which we found very invigorating. But one of the things we observed oh. was that we, we try very hard to ensure that what we believe makes sense. Um, and this is admirable. Um, as Adventists, we take this particularly seriously. Um with varying degrees of success, but we ostensibly try very hard. We tell ourselves that we try very hard to ensure that what we believe is cohesive makes sense. And I think that this is a good practice. But no one's explanation of anything makes more sense than a, than a madman's. Mm. And Chesterton said that if you've ever spoken to someone in the, in the grip of a mental illness or a delusion, um, what is most frightening is their horrible clarity of detail. Mm. They can explain in great detail how they know there's a conspiracy against them um, or whatever delusion yeah. or hallucination the extreme, they're under. The extreme consistency, every detail that you mention to them some, somehow becomes confirmation. Mm. It fits in. The, yeah. It fits in. So, so uh, having things make sense is an admirable goal, but it is never, yeah. never a um, reason to pat yourself on the back and relax. Well, what is it? Humans are fundamentally pattern recognition machines. Yes. We're, we're, we're very good at recognizing patterns. And it's even, and forgive me for the lack of rigor in this uh, assertion, um, because I don't remember at all where I read this. But I, I remember reading about how um, it's actually a mental, it's, it's like a mental defense mechanism to put mm. things into patterns and heuristics so we don't have to analyze the data in detail because that's very tiring for our brains. So we make stories out of it and that helps us remember and it helps us understand and it helps us process. And it has become particularly um, crucial. I mean, it, it, it's, it's become something that we're kind of doing in overdrive now because of the sheer amount of stimulus. Mm that is available uh, to us 
So it, it is not a surprise in the modern context that people would, would cling to certain patterns that they recognize. Well, this is all an a, a, As a form of coping. Yeah. This is all an excellent um, preamble to what we want to discuss uh, briefly now. What the, a relief. The lesson... Yeah, the lesson um, points us towards um, the Old Testament hope, as it calls it. And it goes and finds some examples within the Old Testament of the hope for resurrection. Remember, we're discussing, um, broadly speaking, um, the, the, the fact of death uh, in, in the world. And so um, I would like to, uh, I think it fits into exactly what we're saying, because frankly, in the Old Testament, there seems to me to be a variety of, of pictures and images and if we're overly confident that we can resolve it into one of our favorites then i'm nervous that we might have been a little too reliant on um on on simplifying the data and before we jump i think we've all got a couple of verses ready but i'd like to start our our journey in the book of job and we're in job chapter 19 and there's a great set of verses. We'll limit ourselves to smaller passages because I think we've got a couple that we want to touch on. So I'll just read these three verses. This is Job 19, verses 25 to 27. And it comes after Job has heard um, Bildad and he's responding. And partway through this response, Job says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. And of course, what you hear there is a passage that very clearly feels like the sort of bodily resurrection picture that we as Adventists are, are, are so familiar with. Um, so it's perhaps unsurprising. Is, what I hear, Locke, is one of my favorite songs from Handel's Messiah. Ah, is indeed. It, is it quoting this passage yes, or is it, is. it quoting something from Isaiah? It, 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 right, yes, it this is. Passage. It's quoting this very passage. I know that my mm. Redeemer liveth. It's a song for the that alto, is. I think, from memory. Um, uh, and that's definitely uh, using this verse in the context that the lesson would endorse. Yeah. Um, well, I find this quite interesting because there are two there are two conundrums I have with the book of Job. As in, actually, to be honest, there are more than two, but there are two that are on my mind right now. <laughs> um, I have often heard it asserted, and I have no problem with this at, at face value. I've often heard it asserted that Job is one of the very early writings to have, to have been recorded uh, in in the in the gradual formation of the texts that become our Bible, and yet the Book of Job has an extremely clear and vivid picture of Satan at the very start, in the opening two chapters. And here, it seems to have a pretty vivid picture of bodily resurrection. And and yet, so much of the other parts of the early Old Testament seem to lack both in any sort of clarity. Um, so so that seems to me to be a little bit of a conundrum. And and in order just to, just to launch us off on that journey, I'm thinking um, not of the early Old Testament. Actually, it's a phrase that's used three times in the Old Testament, but I'm reading it from Zechariah 3, verse 10. Uh, On that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. And on that day is a phrase that's often associated with, you know, a, a day yet to come, the fulfillment of of the plan that God is, that God is, um, unfolding in the Old Testament story. And it is often a little bit confused as to whether it means 
a sort of a first advent or a second advent. But let's let's just use that vine and fig tree as an example of an Old Testament hope that is not tied to a, a resurrection. It's tied to a, a peace and a, a sort of freedom to live some of the pleasanter things of life here and now as being a hope to which we can aspire. And it's this tension that I think seems present in the Old Testament. There's the passage in Isaiah about the lion laying down with the lamb, which we interpret very much as a passage about heaven. And later on in that same passage, Isaiah says, you know, when this happens, when this happens, so anyone who dies at the age of 100 will be considered unfortunate hmm. because in this time, everyone's going to live more than 100. You know, in, in, yeah. the, in this day, the Lord's bringing about. But the inference is that within this vision or this message that he's saying, he's talking about a time where people will still die. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It'll just be a longer, fuller, richer life. Mm. Mm, right, the vine and fig tree life. The, the vine and fig tree life, yeah. Yeah, I'll point out that, that my father has taken a particular resonance to with this vine and fig tree passage in the Old Testament. It is repeated there in the Old Testament, as I say, so he probably has good reason for it and has diligently planted both vines and fig trees mm. in order to prepare for his retirement. And and the the one disappointing fact in his life is that he lives in a climate where the vines get mildew and the leaves and fruit rot off the vines. And the fig trees attract the possums, which come and desecrate the figs in the most awful manner. And I'm not yeah. sure that he has yet got to live the life where he sits peacefully under the vine and the fig tree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what other verses? We were chatting before we started recording. There's a couple of other verses that come to mind, aren't there? When we think of this idea of the Old Testament hope, is it picturing a, a kind of thought about death that that it ends with death or a thought about it, death that ends with, with a resurrection. As I say, I was quite struck by that um, passage in Job that, that has the, I will die, but yet I will see God I, in, in my body. I will see God. I just pulled out my um, Hebrew Bible and the following notes are made in relation to verse 25. Uh, mm. It says this, um, I know my Redeemer lives. This famous line, long the subject of Christological interpretation, in fact, continues the imagery of a legal trial to which Job reverts so often. The Redeemer is someone, usually a family member, who will come forth and bear witness on his behalf, and the use of stand up in the second versette has precisely that courtroom connotation. Um, so that uh, while there is a Christological uh, interpretation of it in the context of the particular writing when it occurred uh, it's actually talking about somebody who's going to come and advocate um, uh, hmm. for Job to say uh, that he is innocent uh, I spent Which, to still very much uh, ah, ah, still very much Christ like but not necessarily meaning, associated with death um, uh, hmm. so that's the first thing uh, at least not necessarily associated with a resurrection um, Hmm. <laughs> the second thing is I spent the day um, uh, and yesterday in a conference of Tasmanian magistrates and we were addressed by um, a very engaging young fellow on cultural diversity. Uh, and one of the things that he pointed out was that uh, he was Persian. Well, he was uh, Iranian. He didn't describe himself as Persian. He was Iranian. Um, uh, and 
he pointed out that uh, um, uh, different cultures have a different meaning for a witness. Uh, and, and so that uh, in our culture, everybody understands a witness to be somebody who has seen and heard and made observations and comes along uh, and shares those observations of what they've seen and heard. Uh, but there are many cultures where a witness is not somebody who's seen and heard anything, but a, but a person who will come along and speak on behalf of uh, uh, another and put the family position. Um, uh, and it then occurred to me that some of the um, uh, directions about uh, how decisions are to be made uh, in a legal context contained in the Bible, which say you, know, you must not... Uh, convict in the absence of the uh, evidence of two witnesses may not be talking about uh, those who uh, have seen and heard uh, that you need two people who've witnessed the act uh, but that um, in fact what you need to do is to hear multiple perspectives before you make a decision hmm. um, uh, hear the position of both sides before you make a decision which is um, uh, a different way of looking at it and I think this is an example of perhaps how we so often read passages through our own cultural eyes uh, when there's another way of looking at it. Um, the second observation I make is in relation to verse 26. Again, it doesn't talk about the end of his life. It says, And after they flay my skin from my flesh, I shall behold God. Um, so uh, it's, again, not necessarily talking about a particular, uh, about death and resurrection. Um, it's talking about when my sufferings are over, you will see. Uh. The, the, the footnote on Bible Gateway for the New Living Translation, which is the one that I'm reading for that verse, says, um, the verse says, yet in my, after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. Um, and the footnote then says, or without my body I will see God. The meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. Mm. So it is it is a... A difficult verse to uh, to pin a, a doctrine on, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, let's have a well, look at Job fourteen. Um, let me read you some verses from the same book, seeing as uh, we're in this one. Uh, at least there's hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again, and its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground, and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the centre water, it will bud and put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. So I guess there's a suggestion that maybe after the heavens are no more. <laughs> this is a... Uh, well, it's Job. Well, and, so and, you, and you carry on. This is a very morbid And you passage. carry on yeah. To, yeah. through to verse 14. And this rhetorical question is asked. If a man dies, will he live again? Yeah, keep uh, going. All the days well, of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps but not keep track of my sin. Uh, but uh, the question is clearly includes an implicit answer, no. Um, hmm. um, yeah, I think that um, this, this rhetorical question is not confined to Job. So uh, the passages I was thinking of bringing to this discussion were from Psalms. Uh, let me read you uh, an excerpt from Psalm 6. Lord, turn and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? And then in Psalms uh, 88, 
there's uh, some verses. I'll read you two excerpts. Uh, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. And then later on, um, he asks, uh, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Uh, within the, the general mood of the passage in the psalm, it would be hard to argue that this text suggests David was certain of the resurrection. I think the question here is a genuine... At, if it does nothing else, must at least reveal some doubt in David's mind. Well, I... I think there's an implied of... no. I think that there's an implied no to the question. But but even if you don't allow for that, you have to say that here is someone in the Old Testament who was a fairly important religious figure. David, we would say, was someone well acquainted with God and God's word and God's ways. And he doesn't seem fully convinced of this resurrection thing. Well, I, I would... I don't think David did particularly understand theology very well. He's described as a man after God's own heart. Um... I think he understood the character of God very well. When it comes to specific questions of what's going to happen after death or 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 anything like that, I don't know that there's anything in the Bible that indicates he had a particular insight. Well, maybe his son did. Maybe Solomon did. Um, he says in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5 this, starting at verse 3, This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there's madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Now, we use that to say, to talk about a, a, a sleep, um, but there's nothing in it that suggests any resurrection after that sleep. Indeed, when one carries on with the passage, they have no further reward. And even the memory Ken. of them is forgotten. Their love, their Ken. hate, wait, their love, their hate and their jealousy have long <laughs> since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Carry on, Cam. Uh, okay, you, you said that uh, we use the passage that says the dead know nothing to infer that it is like a sleep. It's not very much like my sleep. Um, my dentist has just given me a Apparently, I gnash my teeth in my sleep, and it's causing damage to my teeth. And I grind them away, and so he's given me this plate thing to wear, and it's taken me a while to get used to it. And for about two or three weeks now, every night has been filled with the most vivid uh, and immersive dreams, uh, <laughs> including a dream exactly a week ago, the night before Ken and I were to preach, in which I dreamt everything went wrong. Ken and I were meant to preach, but... I turned up at one church and he turned up at a different church <laughs> and um, the prelims were interminable and were uh, were absolutely tedious and exhausting and, and uh, cringy. Um, the, they went late. Uh, I stood up very late uh, to start preaching. As I started preaching, Ken started walked down to the aisle to join me. At that point in the dream, I realised I was naked. Um, people started to... <laughs> People started to heckle me um, from from the congregation. It was it was an appalling dream. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm uh, not sure whether that constitutes knowledge, Cam, but it perhaps constitutes I'm some not... form of self-awareness anyway. Well, whatever I... I mean, it, whatever it, it I... sounds a little bit like yeah. hell. Yeah, well, I, hope, I hope it has no resemblance at all with the state of the dead, yeah. is all I'm saying. I mean, if this is something well, that I... Well, well perhaps, perhaps we need then to accept our, our, uh, um, our doctrine of the state of the dead, um, uh, except we'll need to revise our doctrine of hell. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, as an example of how difficult it is to to make sense of some of these passages when we're culturally separated. So one of the one of the passages that I've got open is Psalm forty nine, and there's actually a whole lot here about about dying. Um, you know, those who are wise must finally die, like the foolish and the senseless. So this is similar to some of the sentiments, Ken, that you were just reading. Uh, but then when you get down to um, verse 14 and 15, uh, the psalmist is talking about, um, it seems perhaps the fate of fools. Um, like sheep, they are led to the grave where death will be their shepherd. In the morning, the godly will rule over them. Their bodies will rot in the grave far from their ground estates. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of the grave. And I just want to focus on that. That could be interpreted as being some sense of snatched from the power of the grave, being some sense of the resurrection. And yet, even in our culture, when people have survive a near-death experience, it's not uncommon for them to describe it in similar terms, right? So, so to have cheated death or to have been snatched from the power of the grave might almost be a way to describe something that's not actually a resurrection event. It's just a rescue in the here mm. and now. And I'm, all I'm trying to highlight is the, the difficulty of of the language in some of these passages. Uh, and, um, and that difficulty ought not surprise us, uh, because it was a difficulty faced by the Jewish theologians. Um, and we know that because in Acts 23, when Paul's before the Sanhedrin, uh, he says this at verse 6, I stand on trial today because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Uh, so we ought not be surprised that, I mean, we sometimes attempted to think that these uh, Sadducees and Pharisees were a bunch of dullards. Um, uh, that simply cannot be the case. Um, these were the academics, the, um, uh, the intellectuals um, of the time, uh, sincere, mm. um, highly skilled theologians. Disciplined. Uh, disciplined, Ken. They were very disciplined. On both sides, who each with, their, with the same texts, the very ones that we mm. are looking at, reach completely opposite conclusions. It is difficult to understand how how we can be so certain about all of those texts, save for this. Um, and it, uh, I'm going to preface what I say about this in a moment. Um, we need to remember that Paul was a Pharisee. Um, so, he, of course, he believed in the resurrection. And the resurrection is central to his theology, and his theology is Christian theology of today. Um, mm. uh, but... We do nonetheless need to recognise that the central event of the Christian worldview is the 
resurrection of Christ. And that our worldview, our theodicies, um, uh, carry very little meaning in the absence of a the reality of the bodily resurrection um, of Christ. Mm. So um, we've raised all of these difficulties with these passages, um, and it's right to do that. Uh, but I think it's appropriate also to come back and recognise that it is a central theme of Christian theology, perhaps not universal, mm. but central and mm. generally uh, required uh, that, that resurrection is real. Um, um, I've got I've got a, a, a thought lock to throw in. This may mm. qualify as a concluding thought. I don't know. Um, I think it'll I'm have to be given the, the time. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> It is remarkable, and I've never thought about it um, till now, but it's remarkable how very little the Bible has to say about the state of the dead as a, as a feature of um, religious... Compare it to the Egyptians who, mm. who map out in great detail the various gods, the journey, the river, the scales, the this, the this, the this, who prepare um, great um, tombs, for themselves, uh, mm-hmm. there's there's no record. I don't think of any Old Testament of any Jewish person doing the equivalent of the pyramid, and and you know the pharaohs who'd be buried with their slaves so that they'd have slaves mm-hmm. to look after them in the afterlife, and and the amount of effort and time that went into all the embalming and everything to prepare it to get it just right, um, and it seems to me that the state of the dead is a question on which the Bible has some things to say that we should pay attention to. But it, mm. we must also pay attention to the fact that it says very little, particularly the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, mm. when it affirms the resurrection, it all it says is that things are going to be quite different. You know, the mm. perishable dies and will be raised imperishable. Um, well, okay, but where's the juicy details? And uh, my thoughts are, are turned to the story of the rich young ruler. And when the rich young ruler says to Christ, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> um, Christ says, that's not really the right question. Um, is there any good you can do in the world? Mm. I mean, right now. Well, you've, yeah, while so, you've been speaking, my my thoughts have been turning to, to, a, to a, a play on words, which you've walked, you've led straight into, so I can't mm. hold it back. I actually think if the lesson topic for this week is going to be the Old Testament hope, then I think that the body of textual evidence says that that hope has more to do with the alleviation of suffering than the resurrection from death. In the Old Testament, I think that the predominant hope to which the prophets aspire is the hope that justice and peace and restoration and reconciliation can come to those who are suffering. And so I wondered to myself, is it that we should be paying more attention to the state of the suffering than the state of the dead? That, that's not a good concluding thought, Mark. Where's Where are we going to find time for my rant about social justice? <laughs> <laughs> Which, just to let you know, prior to verse 25 of Job 19, full of it. Full of social right. justice. Go and read it. Right. We don't have we don't have time now, but anybody listening, go and read the start of Joseph nineteen, and and jo- look at jo- what he's Job nineteen. Yeah, uh, Job Job nineteen, and look what he's yeah. talking about. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the the social justice element is kind of what I mean. I think when I'm talking about the hope of yeah. of you know the state yeah. of the suffering that seems yeah. to be you know the Exodus story, which is in many ways the formational story of the Old Testament. Most of Genesis is in fact sort of preamble. The formational story for the Hebrew culture in the Old Testament is is the Exodus. God is so many times referred to as the God who brought you out of Egypt. That formational story is the story of God stepping in upon hearing the cry of the suffering to do something about it and obviously is is calling his people forevermore to participate in that same mission. Yeah. I'm not I'm not comfortable pinning the Old Testament down to to specific information on the state of the dead and resurrection and what I what I would be very willing to endorse is this sentiment. Uh, God can be trusted. Yeah. Use the life he's, life he's given you to make a positive difference to the world. If you if you're worried about what your life means either while you're living now or while you're dead or after a resurrection or what it entails, it's fine. God can be trusted in that. As you live day to day, use the life he's given you now to make a positive difference in the world. Well, we're going to take that as our concluding remark for this for this episode. So thank you for listening. And it's been really fun uh, having the four of us back together. I think it's actually been a couple of weeks since we managed to achieve this. So, so this has been really good fun. Um, if you have any thoughts that you would like to... Um, share with us and and then perhaps indirectly on to other listeners if you would like to put us back on the appropriate straight and narrow paths from which we we may stray at times if, if you just enjoy the meandering journeys and want to share that with us too then feel free to email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com and um, of course if you've enjoyed this podcast, there may be other people in your life that could too so feel very comfortable to, to share it on with friends, enemies, and those in suffering. And um, we look forward to you joining us again next week for another episode.